This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. David Cohen is the Deputy Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He served as a CIA deputy during the last two years of the Obama administration and now the first two years of the Biden administration. David joins me today to talk about CIA's 75th anniversary, where the agency goes from here, as well as some of the issues making history today. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. David, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you. Thank you. Great to be back. So the last time you were on, you were the former deputy director of CIA. Right. And now you're the deputy director of CIA again. So this is kind of backwards, right? Usually the current deputy. Back to the future. (laughs) Back to the future. It's absolutely great to have you. And I want to come back later to this question of being deputy director twice, because I think that's actually important. Sure. I actually have a journalistic responsibility here to tell my listeners that you and I are friends. So I've now done that. Okay, good. And I should also tell them that our wives and our kids are a heck of a lot smarter than both of us. Yes, I think everybody who knows us <laughs> agrees with that. Okay. This month, the Central Intelligence Agency is celebrating its 75th anniversary. For those who don't know, CIA was created by the 1947 National Security Act, which became a law in the summer of that year, but which became effective in September. So happy birthday. Thank you very much. And for the 50th anniversary in 1997, I was this mid-level CIA official Mm -hmm. in charge of the PDB staff and the briefers. I wonder where you were in 1997. So in in 1997, I was a partner in a law firm here in Washington, D.C., and was actually right on the cusp of my first foray into federal service, into going to the U.S. government. So about a year, two years later, I went into the Treasury Department. This was at the tail end of the Clinton administration. Went in as a lawyer and began working on what we now call sort of illicit finance. It was the the anti-money laundering new office that was being set up in the Treasury Department at that point. So how'd you get from that job in the Treasury Department to Deputy Director CIA? What's that story? A somewhat circuitous route, I would say. So I did that job for a couple of years until uh, mid-2001. Went back out, practiced law for about seven and a half years. And then at the Obama administration, is coming in in the beginning of 2009, 
Many of the folks who I had worked with when I was in the Treasury Department previously were coming back in, in different roles in different capacities. So Larry Summers was coming back. He was going to the White House. Tim Geithner, who had been an undersecretary of Treasury, was coming back to be the Treasury Secretary. And there were other folks, a guy named Neil Wallen, who had been mm. the general counsel who I worked for at Treasury, was back at the White House as Larry's lawyer at that point. Anyway, I begged and pleaded and, and, uh, and cajoled people to take me back. And so I came back into Treasury right at the beginning of the Obama administration in the new part of the Treasury that had been set up in the meantime that was focused on illicit finance, on our sanctions programs, on combating money laundering around the world. I think it was created as a result of 9-11. It was created as a result of 9-11. It was sort of the national security side of the Treasury Department. And then deputy director, how do you go from there to deputy director? So I came in as the assistant secretary for terrorist financing, did that for a couple of years, then became the undersecretary for terrorism and financial intelligence. And in that role, in both of those roles, I worked quite a lot with the intelligence community, with the CIA in particular, uh, and also worked with a guy named John Brennan, who for the first four years of the Obama administration was in the White House as the the deputy national security advisor for counterterrorism. I was doing a lot of counterterrorist financing work. He had the whole counterterrorism beat in the White House. He had then, as you know, become the director. I was at Treasury. In fact, you and I sat in many, many deputies meetings, right? Indeed, right. Yeah. Yeah. And he was the director. I was actually about to leave the Treasury Department. It was the November, December of 2014. I had been in government for about six years at that point. And I got a call. So your successor of Real Haynes, who was the deputy at the time, was leaving that job to come down to the White House to be the deputy national security advisor. And so John needed a new deputy. And I had gotten to know John a little bit in my prior capacity. I knew of Real. I knew a bunch of other folks. And I got a, basically got a call out of the blue initially from Avril, who said that John was going to be calling me. I thought it was uh, actually a prank uh, call initially. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, John called, asked if I was interested, yeah. and, you know, I jumped at the chance. Yeah. So here's the interesting question back, you know, going back to where we started. In Washington, D.C., everybody is focused on the next step in the ladder, right? Mm-hmm. So you come back yeah. to the Biden administration as deputy director again, and that was the yeah. job you had at the end Right. of the Obama administration. Yeah. Why did you do that? The mission. I mean, basically the mission. I, I, so I had the chance to do this job for two years, uh, for the last two years of the Obama administration. And I loved it. It's uh, a great job. It's a, it's a, it <laughs> it's is a, a fantastic job. job. And it is for someone like me and, and like you, who are really interested in national security and foreign policy, as well as in serving our country. It is an extraordinary opportunity to work with really, really fantastic people doing really interesting and consequential things. And so I, I had the opportunity to do that for a couple of years. When in the transition into the Biden administration, this opportunity arose and the opportunity arose to, to work with Bill Burns, who I had known from my treasury days when he had been at the State Department. It was a very easy decision. I was delighted to have the opportunity to come back and, uh, and to keep on working with the with the terrific folks at the CIA and really around the intelligence community around the, the national security establishment. So a lot of our, David, a lot of our listeners are students or young professionals who are thinking about their future and their careers. You know, you've made it to the deputy director of CIA. What advice would you have for a student or a young professional you know, who wants to be successful, who wants to, yeah. who wants to rise in the U.S. government? Look, I, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think one is working in the federal government, working in the national security space requires dedication. Uh, it requires you're working hard. The folks who do these jobs, the folks who I get to work with every day are deeply committed to what they do. And, you know, if you want to progress, if you want to succeed, you know, you've got to be able to, you know, to work hard and deliver, take it seriously and produce. So I think that's part of it. The other is like, is, and I, and I tell folks who I, you know, have the chance to mentor or talk to about this, which is to keep your eyes open about for opportunities, right? My path, as I said, was, you know, this circuitous path to this job. I was very interested in foreign policy, national security issues in college. I decided not to pursue 
a career in this field at that time. I went to law school, but I maintained my interest. Um, and when that first opportunity arose back in uh, the end of the Clinton administration to go in in a uh, in something that was not squarely in the national security space, but was at least adjacent to it, I took that opportunity. It was not a particularly smart career move at the time. I was this, you know, I was a young partner in this law firm, and I left the law firm to take what was essentially a a newly made up job. But that, you know, then created other opportunities. And when the you know when the opportunity came to go back in at the beginning of the Obama administration, again I was a partner in a law firm and jumped again. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that's yeah. the, you know, I so. I think staying alert to opportunities yeah. and being willing to to, yeah. to not not think you have to go on the you know on the predetermined path. Yeah, yeah, I did that inside the agency, right? I just didn't go up the ladder. I right. took advantage of all these different opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the seventy fifth anniversary. Yeah. How does a secret intelligence organization, you know, celebrate a birthday? You know, was there a cake? Did somebody load the cake out? How does that work? Yeah, I am neither <laughs> going to confirm nor deny. <laughs> Uh, whether there was a cake, um, but we did a we did a whole bunch of things, and it was you know as you said the the actual birthday I think was just a few days ago, but we have been building up and celebrating uh, our seventh birthday over the course of this past year. We've done a number of events. Uh, President Biden came out to the agency and spoke to the workforce from in front of the memorial wall there, expressed his appreciation for what we are doing for national security and the the sacrifices and the and the successes that the agency has delivered over the years that was you know that obviously the highlight of our 75th anniversary you know uh, programming we've done other things we we had a a relatively recently we inducted another five trailblazers into the roster of CIA trailblazers what's a trailblazer so a trailblazer is someone who has contributed to the agency in a way sort of above and beyond your average agency officer. It goes you know, back to the OSS days, to the predecessor organization, to the CIA. And we have, you know, over, I think this actually began, I think at the 50th anniversary. Maybe, I think so, yes. Yeah, I think yes. at the 50th with, yes. with the original 50 trailblazers. Yeah. And now on the 75th anniversary, we have you know, topped up to 75. And so we inducted five new trailblazers. You know, one, which was actually, I think, long overdue, a woman named Virginia Hall. Oh, yes. Who was, you know, originally an officer in the OSS and then was the first paramilitary case officer in the agency back in the in the 1950s, you know, responsible for running agent networks behind enemy lines and denied areas, training, equipping, organizing resistance forces, and really a pioneer in the agency, the folks who are in the, you know, in the directorate of operations or paramilitary officers in particular, look to her and her example as, you know, still the, the shining example of how to, how to do these sorts of operations. So we inducted a number of, of trailblazers. And then one other thing we did, we have a museum in the agency, which we've had for a number of years. It has recently been refurbished. And so we we had the opportunity to to open up our new museum, which has you know, artifacts from the agency's history going back to its founding, even before up uh, until the present time. I mean, I think the most the most recent artifact that we have in the museum is we have the model of the compound in downtown Kabul, where Ayman al Zawahiri mm. uh, was was living. So when, you built a model of. Yeah. Of that the way we did Abbottabad. Exactly. Yeah. So we have both the Abbottabad model where Osama bin Laden was living, and we have a, a model That's of very cool. the compound in in, uh, in downtown Kabul as well, and a whole host of other yeah. very cool artifacts that yeah. uh, sort of trace the history of the agency. So David, let me ask a couple of questions about CIA's 75-year history. How does the organization define success, right? There has to be some kind of yardstick t- to measure yourself against. You know, what is that yardstick? You know, maybe it's not just one thing. Maybe it's many things. And based on that, how do you assess how the agency's done over its 75 years? (laughs) Look, I think the agency has has delivered for the country over these past 75 years in a really significant way, which is not to say that we haven't had 
are ups and downs, that, you know, that it is not, you know, a history of, you know, unalloyed success. There have been, there have been stumbles along the way, uh, times where we have fallen short. But, you know, our fundamental responsibility is to provide the policy community, the president, with sort of decision advantage, with an understanding of what's happening in the world so that the president's his closest advisors and others around the the community, around the, the foreign policy national security community, can make decisions about how to conduct U.S. foreign policy, conduct our national security in a way that gives us an advantage over our adversaries. And the agency, I think, delivers quite well on that sort of fundamental responsibility. You know, a lot of what you know draws attention are you know, sort of headline moments. And the agency, you know, has contributed to, you know, sort of signal successes in American foreign policy and national security over the years. But the way I would really grade the agency is how we do on a day-in, day-out basis in sort of the blocking and tackling of what it is that we are asked to do for, uh, you know, for the policy community. And that is, you know, collecting intelligence, collecting human intelligence in particular, being an, an, an all-source analytic uh, shop that collates all that we collect and that our partners around the IC collect, and delivering so, insight and, as I say, sort of decision advantage, indications and warning, understanding. Reducing uh, uncertainty. Yeah, exactly, yeah. to yeah, the yeah, policy community. Yeah. And I think, you know, we do, a, we do a pretty good job. But, you know, if I, I think the grade I would give us, though, is incomplete. Right, because I think our job's never done. Yeah. So I don't think it's. You know, I don't think we're ready to get a, a letter grade yet. Yeah, I'm going to show my bias here, and say, you know, with regard to stumbles, there's not an organization on the planet that doesn't have its stumbles. Sure, ours stand out because they're so consequential. Yeah, which tells you, right, that the work itself is so consequential. So can you react to that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and look, as I mean, as you know, the agency is asked to do difficult things, right? You know, motto: we go where others don't go. We do things that others are you know can't do. And you know, working in that space, working in the space where we are asked to do hard things, you know, occasionally we will fall short, and we have. And I and I'll say one of the things that I'm proud of in this in the museum that I mentioned is that. We don't shy away from some of the stumbles that we have encountered over time. There's a, you know, there is a display, for instance, about the Iraq WMD intelligence and, you know, all about how the, the agency, you know, I think did not, frankly, perform the way it, it should have and could have in, in that whole episode and in particular with, uh, with Secretary Powell's uh, speech at the UN. So, I mean, we are, and I think, and it's, I think it's important that we, acknowledge that, that we recognize that. You know, our museum is, you know, in large part used as a teaching tool for our officers. And so as we also, you know, show successes that the agency has had over the years, it's also important that we, we, you know, talk about our stumbles. And there have been those stumbles. I think it is, you know, largely born, if not entirely born, out of the effort to do hard things yeah. in uncertainty sure. in difficult places. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David Cohen. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So I think the media, I'm going to show my bias again. Mm -hmm. I think the media has been harder on us than is reality. Um, I'm thinking of a book like Legacy of Ashes, which basically says everything we've ever done is a failure. And I'm wondering, is that because, you know, do you agree with that, number one? And if so, is that because 
of the nature of the role of the media in our society that they have to question government or, you know, are we not sharing enough? Just yeah. what's your reaction to that? Is my premise wrong? Yeah. So I think the, well, at least the premise of the, of the book of everything being a failure, I, I, I do not subscribe to. I think that is, that is not right. I think a couple of things. One is I do think one of the things that we have an obligation to do as senior agency officials and why I'm happy to be here today is I do think it's important for us to talk about what the agency does so people understand what, what we do, what we're asked to do and what we're not asked to do. So I think part of the critique of the agency is really a broader critique of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. national security decision-making. We don't make policy, right? We, as, as we've discussed, we provide intelligence, intelligence analysis to the policy community and, you know, over to the, the policymakers to make the policy. So I think that's, that's one thing. A second thing is, as I was mentioning earlier, a lot of what we do are not these big, you know, headline moments. These are, it is the, the daily work of agency officers and others around the IC to collect intelligence, analyze it, package it up, produce it, provide insight and, and deliver it to the, to the policy community. That is entirely invisible to the American public. And, you know, so I do think we are, you know, putting points on the board every day, but that scoreboard is, you know, within the confines right. of the agency. And so people right. don't see that. Right. Um, right. And so right. I think some of our, of our successes, some of what we have accomplished over the years is not, by its very nature, is not visible to the American public. But I will, you know, you know, whether the, the media, you know, plays a role in this or not, I will, I will leave to others to... You'll leave to me. I'll leave to you, yeah. You <laughs> okay. That part. Last question on, on the 75 years. I was just at a conference at the Belfer Center mm-hmm. last Friday uh, at the Kennedy School at Harvard on the 75th the whole day. And I was cornered by some academic historians who said... Sounds scary. Who said, who said <laughs> Michael... Michael, I was actually quite worried. Michael, you know, you guys release the analytic views of the agency, you know, at a certain point in history. Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't release the underlying intelligence that led to those judgments, right? Mm-hmm. And the point they made to me was, look, because of what you do, we can assess whether the analysis was right, but we can't assess how well the agency did at collection and how hard, right, and therefore how hard the analysis was to do, right? How do you respond to that critique? Because I did not respond well to it. I I didn't have an answer, right, for them. Well, look, I think the, it is, you know, frankly, harder to release the building blocks, the underlying intelligence collection that goes into the analysis, because that has the greater likelihood of revealing sources and methods. And, you know, one of our you know, absolute fundamental obligations is to protect our sources. We have, you know, we recruit people who at great risk, you know, risk of their lives, provide us information. And in analysis, you can elide a little bit, you know, where the it's information not as clear, came from. Right? It's, it's not, not as, as clear. clear. Right. But if we were to release the underlying intelligence, the, you know, the, it just heightens the risk that our sources and and our methods in collecting intelligence would be would be revealed. So, uh, you know, I think it is just more difficult to do that. You know, they, I understand the critique, right? If you're an academic and and, and really want to understand how how uh, insightful the analysis is, understanding the the building blocks that went into it would be would be useful. But, you know, we have an intelligence agency to run yeah. and maintaining faith with our with our assets and, you know, maintaining the, you know, the secrecy and the clandestinity of what we do will enable us to continue to do that yeah. in the future. You also have a group of historians inside, sure. right, who aren't yeah. shy about being critical and they have access right. to everything. That's absolutely, yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. David, let's turn to the future. Okay. What needs to stay the same? What needs to change for the CIA to continue to be to play its role in the U.S. foreign policy process effectively. How do you think about that? Yeah, look, I think this is also part of our 75th anniversary, right? I mean, we've taken time to recount our successes, to to be clear-eyed about where we've fallen short, but also to take stock of what we need to do going forward so that, you know, the next 75 years and beyond, the agency is is able to uh, to do its job. The way that I think we are posturing ourselves for the the challenges to come is to be very deliberate about our strategic direction. Right? So we are taking our cue from the from the policy community, from the president, substantially increasing our focus on the People's Republic of China, um, and that means. Uh, organizationally, creating a new mission center, which is how we sort of organize the agency's activities, a new mission center that is dedicated to to China, to the PRC. We're also we're increasing resources. We're increasing the number of Mandarin speakers that we have in the agency. And we are you know, ensuring that the agency as a whole, not just the China Mission Center, but the agency as a whole, is increasing its focus on the range of challenges that we face from from the PRC, military challenges, technological challenges, ideological challenges, the list goes on. And right? a, global, Space, a global focus. And a global focus. I mean, it is a responsibility of our Western Hemisphere Mission Center to be thinking about how the PRC is operating in you know South and Central America. The same is true for our Africa Mission Center, our, our European Mission Center, right? To, Part of what they need to do, in addition to uh, you know, a whole host of other things in their in their areas of responsibility, is to think about and to work against the malign influence of China right. uh, in those areas. I think so, this is really important. The only other two issues in the history of the agency on which we had a global focus were the Soviet Union yeah. and then counterterrorism. So right. this is now the third China. Yeah. So the China Mission Center was organized so that we are structurally and, and from a resource perspective, focused on this issue. You know, so we are, you know, so we're looking at a, you know, increasingly adversarial China. We are obviously focused on an aggressive Russia. And so this, under the rubric of sort of great power competition, we are, you know, obviously, and we can talk more about this, have been spending, you know, a right. substantial sure. amount of time and attention on the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But by creating the structure of the China Mission Center and you know of some other sort of subsidiary uh, changes that we've made, we are trying very hard to keep our eye on the long-term challenge that the PRC presents. So you've got China, you've got great power competition. We're also focused on revolution in technology. You know the world is you know is obviously awash in new technologies developing very quickly. The pace of technological change is something that as an agency and frankly as a, as a national security community, we need to do a better job of understanding how new technologies from biotech to advanced computing to wireless, you know, sort of you know, a whole host of different uh, technologies create sort of risk to our national security. And, our, and we need to understand how our adversaries are weaponizing these technologies and we need to do a better job frankly of engaging with the private sector so that we understand 
how technology is developing and how we can use technology better in what we do. So the other sort of major structural change that we have made in the last year sort of set us up for the future is we created another mission center, the Transnational and Technology Mission Center, whose responsibility is to think about sort of broader issues of national security, climate change, global health, global food security, these sorts of issues which have real national security implications but um, are sort of not traditional areas of focus, but then also with a, a really intense focus on, on technology and technological developments, both as a threat that we need to understand better and we need to collect on, we need to write about, we need to uh, explain what we, what we see out there to our policy community just like any other threat, but also do a better job of incorporating technology into what the agency does every day so that we're able to execute our mission more effectively. And as we focus on you know, China and technology, we will, of course, continue our efforts to protect this country against the threat of terrorism. It remains an important responsibility of the CIA to collect intelligence on terrorist threats, to to work with others around the IC and around the national security community to address those threats. I think the strike that was taken by the U.S. government against uh, Zawahiri in Kabul you know, six weeks ago is a good indication. The agency was deeply involved in developing the pattern of life of Zawahiri there and, and assisting the effort. Earlier this year, there was a U.S. counterterrorism operation that took out the leader of ISIS, Haji Abdullah, in Syria. So the agency going forward is going to continue uh, its important counterterrorism mission as well. You mentioned Russia, Ukraine, and maybe we could talk a, a bit about that because I think this is a historical event. I mean, someday in the CIA museum, there's going to be something about Russia, Ukraine. Yeah. I'm not going to ask what you guys are doing operationally, but you know, this is an event that I think is going to define history for some time. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you some questions about that and Let me do it in a bit of a strange way. What I want to do, David, is first throw out some names of some of the key players and just get your quick reaction, okay? And then I'm going to throw out some concepts and get your quick reaction, okay? Let's start with the antagonist, Vladimir Putin. So I think as we sit here today, and I'm I'm mindful that this is going to air probably in a week or so. Right, got to be a little careful. Yeah. Careful here with her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I think this is a, a trend line that has been developing over some period of time and is, I think, not likely to change in, <laughs> between when we're together and when this, uh, when this broadcasts. I think Putin is feeling increasingly challenged in the pursuit of what remains a constant objective. So his objective is to dominate and control Ukraine. I don't think there's any reason to think that his fundamental objective, which led to the invasion last February and you know, has you know, just in the last day or so led to him doing this partial mobilization, the draft in Russia, that objective remains unchanged. I think he even said so, frankly, yeah, in, in yeah, uh, the speech yeah. he did recently. That being said, I think he also recognizes, and it took a little while for him to come to this recognition for a variety of reasons, but I think he now recognizes that his military adventure into Ukraine is not going well. They are not making, they were not making any progress in the East. You know, they had, after the initial foray right, into right. into Kiev was rebuffed, they sort of swung around and were trying to essentially take over the entire Donbass and started in Luhansk and they were going to move down into Donetsk, that had stalled out, you know, over, basically over the summer, the Ukrainians were holding them back. And then, you know, in the last several weeks, the Ukrainians have kicked off two counteroffensives, one up in the Northeast in Kharkiv, where they have made really significant strides in pushing the Russians back, essentially, to the Ukrainian-Russian border. Down in the South, in uh, Kherson, there's another offensive underway, which is, you know, I, I think not is not progressing quite as as well as the one in the Northeast. But the the skill and the success of the Ukrainians, particularly up in Kharkiv, I think has caused Putin to, you know, to question his military, 
question the capability of his military and you know, I think has led to this decision to do this mobilization, which he has resisted doing. When the war started, Putin had about 180,000 troops amassed on the border of Ukraine, and they were part of the invasion. Now, six, seven months in, they have you know, about 80,000 troops either killed or wounded who are no longer in the fight. Wow. He's now calling for about 300,000 you know, new draftees, essentially, to, to come. But people who served in, in the, in the military before? They have some military uh, experience. I mean, they have a compulsory one-year military service, so you've, he has a large pool to pull from. But what the forces that he has used, the troops that he's used up to now, have predominantly been young men and boys from outside of the major population areas and certainly outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. And so he has been able to externalize to some extent away from the elites in Moscow and St. Petersburg the pain of, mm. this, uh, of this invasion. Now with this mobilization, and you can see it with people voting with their feet in the yeah. last couple of days, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, trying to get out of Russia, the reality of what is happening in Ukraine and the difficulty that the the Russian military is having there is becoming more apparent. And I think that's that's something that Putin is going to have to uh, you know, try to manage uh, over the next yeah. you know weeks and months. Ukrainian President Zelensky. You got to tip your hat to him. Yeah, guy, you sure do. Right? I mean, he has stepped up in a way that you know I think few people expected he would be able to do in and in a couple in a couple of really important respects certainly internationally he has been very effective in galvanizing support for the the fight against against the russians internally he has managed to keep together what you know historically has been a fractious internal political environment in ukraine right now obviously the 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 Russian invasion tends to, I think, concentrate the mind right, and concentrate right, right. the, you know, and, and reduce, I think, some of the difficulty of political intrigue that would you know, normally be the case and was the case in Kiev over the years. But he's, but he's done a, a pretty good job of keeping the political situation within Ukraine, you know, well aligned to their objective here of fighting off the Russians. And he's, you know, he's, he's shown himself to be a a pretty good commander in chief uh, yeah, yeah. of the Ukrainian military. Now, yeah. a lot of the credit in how the Ukrainian military has performed is obviously you know, should go to the the folks on the front lines who have shown incredible bravery uh, in the face of the the Russian the Russian army and their and their commanders. They've done you know they've done a remarkable job as well as Ukrainian citizens who have, who have themselves obviously endured just horrific uh, atrocities, but have also been, you know, an important uh, contributor to the war effort in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. One more name, mm -hmm. Xi Jinping as it relates to <laughs> Russia-Ukraine. Yeah, so Xi Jinping, I think, is watching very carefully what is happening in Ukraine. You know, just before the invasion, uh, you know, Putin was in Beijing for the Olympics, and the two of them declared their, you know, partnership without limits. Sort of not further defined, but it was a part, but they, they said that they had this partnership without limits. I think what we have seen is Xi Jinping be quite cautious about the limits of his partnership with, uh, with, with Putin and with Russia and has taken advantage of the situation. Uh, he's, he has been importing... Uh, oil from Russia at a reduced price. Um, frankly, not unlike what they did back in 2014 mm -hmm. when the Russians went into Ukraine the first time. Um, so he's, uh, you know, he is seeing an opportunity here to, uh, uh, you know, to, to take advantage of his good friend, Vladimir Putin. But I think he's also learning lessons on a, a couple of different layers here. And I think one, intelligence. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the Russian intelligence services 
did not serve Vladimir Putin and the Russian, uh, you know, the Russian uh, leadership well here. They obviously grossly underestimated both the Ukrainian capacity to resist as well as the the willingness of the West, the EU, the United States, others to come together to support the Ukrainians. So I think Xi Jinping is wondering about his intelligence services, particularly, I think he's looking a lot of this, obviously, through the lens of Taiwan and the, you know, his, his, his long-term goal of gaining control of Taiwan. So I think he's questioning intelligence services. I think he's questioning his military. Um, I think seeing how the Russian military has struggled in Ukraine they, has likely caused him to question just how well the, the PLA the Chinese military would perform if they were called upon which to fight. Which hasn't fought a war since 1979. Right. And, it, and so, which is sort of the same problem, in part, the, the problem that the Russian military encountered. They, you know, they had not seen combat for a long time, and when they got into combat, you know, their weaknesses were revealed. Economically, he's got to be paying attention. The, the sanctions that uh, have been levied against Russia by the EU, by the U.S., by others around the world, have had a, a significant, really significant impact on Russia, on its economy, on its ability to continue to, to feed their military capability. It's obviously a slightly different, more than slightly different situation in the, the Chinese economy versus the Russian economy, but I think he's got to be uh, thinking about how the, the economic response to the invasion uh, of Ukraine would play out if there were a, a Chinese invasion of of Taiwan. The international reaction, I think he's paying attention to. You know, the, Xi Jinping wants to claim the mantle of global leadership. I think one thing that is you know evident from the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that Putin's standing in the world has gone down, not up. Right. Um, so I think uh, Xi Jinping's got to be thinking about that. And then that finally, I think he's got to. He's got to be thinking about how Ukraine has performed in fending off an invader mm. and has got to be asking himself how Taiwan would perform if there were a military effort to, to gain control of Taiwan. Yeah. So I think on a whole host of, of issues, I think Xi Jinping is trying to understand the lessons to be learned uh, from the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let me quickly run through some concepts and just get your reaction. Risk of the use of weapons of mass destruction by Putin. Is this total intimidation or only intimidation, or is there a real risk here? Look, I think we need to pay attention to what Putin says. And his uh, you know, so nuclear saber rattling uh, recently something that we've got to um, take seriously. Our responsibility as intelligence agency and intelligence community is obviously to pay attention to what our adversaries say, but also what they do. Um, and so I think your listeners will not be surprised to learn that we are paying very close attention to uh, to the potential use of WMD, whether it's nuclear or otherwise. We have not seen, you know, as we sit here today, we have not seen indications that the Russians are planning to uh, to use nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, to a demonstration strike. We haven't seen the the uh, you know the movements that would be associated with that. You know, but we've got to uh, we've got to continue to to keep a close eye on this. You know, I, it's a it is you know highly irresponsible for the leader of a nuclear weapon state to engage in this sort of nuclear saber rattling. You know, so the, I think every nuclear weapon state has a responsibility to be, to not use the threat of nuclear strikes uh, right. for, uh, you know, for advantage in this sort of situation. But it's something that, uh, that we're watching very closely. Ukraine's chance of driving Russia completely out of the country, including Crimea. Look, I think that's a tall order. But, you know, we have seen, you know, in the last several weeks, some significant uh, success by the Ukrainian military up in Kharkiv. But I think it's also important to recognize that the Russian military still controls 
significant territory in Ukraine, and you know, far beyond the February twenty fourth borders. Right. You know where they were before this invasion kicked off. Even with the success that the Ukrainians have had in the last couple of weeks, the Russians control a, a, you know a fair piece of eastern Ukraine. They have a land bridge that now you know connects eastern Ukraine all the way down to uh, to Crimea. And they're dug in. And, you know, defense is easier than offense. Yeah. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's, tall as order. I said, it's a tall order. Putin's staying power politically, should he lose the war? There's a embedded uncertainty in that question. <laughs> I will call you. I don't, what does lose mean? And I guess yeah, the way I would define yeah. it is his, his citizens have the perception that they that lost. lost. Yeah, look, I think one of the things, and I, I, I know you as a as a trained analyst appreciate this, is we've got to we have to be careful about mirror imaging here, right? Russia is not the United States. Putin is, you know, not the popularly, truly popularly elected leader of that country, uh, and the way he governs is not the way that you know we govern here. And so, the if Russia, as you say, is the, the population in Russia perceives a loss here. That's a bad day for Putin, no question. But uh, I think we, we need to be sober about the grip that Putin has on the security services in, in Russia, their capacity, which we have seen you know, over the past you know, six, seven months now of this, uh, you know, since, the, since the invasion, to stifle dissent and to and to you know act in uh, in quite aggressive uh, ways against people who are raising questions about the war, but again, you know, th- there's a you know you cannot exclude the possibility that if there is a you know a significant you know sense in Russia that they have lost that they've lost face that they're that Putin has led them into uh, a situation that you know a, a huge number of folks in Russia find untenable that his his grip on power could weaken but I you know I would not be um, I wouldn't be counting on okay it. two more real quick Russia as a nation state as an international player in the aftermath of the war yeah I think Russia's standing in the world is going to be diminished for a long time just, and I'll just cite two reasons I mean one just economically the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia have already taken a toll. Their economy is in recession. Their inflation is through the roof. They're drawing down on their reserves. And these sanctions are only going to, you know, as they stay in place, that the the effect of these sanctions is only going to continue to, to grow. I think they're in a in a sort of bleak situation right now, and it's just going to deteriorate. And so Russia's economic place in the world is not going to rebound. And you're just along those lines, you know, Europe is accelerating its, its effort to become less dependent on Russian energy. And as they make that shift, I don't expect that they're going to shift back. Um, so, and that's been, you know, obviously an enormously important source of revenue to Russia for uh, for many years, and so that that is a long term problem for them. And then, look, I just think broadly, Russia's standing in the in the eyes of the international community is is deteriorating. You see it in the way that you know they just had a, a meeting of the the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in Samarkand. And both uh, Xi Jinping and and Prime Minister Modi, in small ways but significant ways, distance themselves yes, uh, from Putin. Uh, it, and I think that trend line is one that I think is also yeah. It's uh, a deep irony here, right? Because Putin wanted to be the great Russian leader, right? Yeah. The leader that made Russia great again, and it's yeah. just just the opposite. Yeah. Last question: the impact of the outcome of the war in Ukraine on the global commons, right? On the behavior of nation states vis-a-vis one another mm-hmm. on the possible behavior of China vis-a-vis Taiwan or Iran's behavior in the Middle East, right? Yeah. How important is this war to, I guess, the, the overall concept of deterrence yeah. globally? 
Look, I think it's it is it's it's important. People are watching. Uh, we were talking about Xi Jinping earlier. He's obviously watching this very very carefully, and I think thinking about it through the lens of his desire to to gain control of of Taiwan. The way that the international community has responded here, I think, is sending an important message. But this you know this story is not finished yet. Yeah. Right. And the the lessons that people will take from this will obviously be different. You know, they're, you know, the, the world is a complicated place. There are lots of different leaders out there who take, who draw different lessons based on their unique circumstances. But the, the sort of fundamental, you know, modern notion that you can't change borders by force, that sovereignty means something and that self-determination is, uh, you know, is a important, you know, and sacrosanct precept. I think that has been reinforced. And, you know, as this continues to roll out, uh, you know, people will, you know, will draw lessons on how it develops. But I do think that there's been a, an opportunity here that the, that the international community, not in, not, you know, uniformly, but as a whole has taken to, you know, to emphasize the importance of those sort of fundamental precepts. David, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Fascinating discussion. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome. That was David Cohen. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.